can turn to Acts chapter 17. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, learning about the wonder of how God used the early church to be witnesses of Jesus Christ and how through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, God used them to bring the gospel and to bring his kingdom throughout the whole earth, starting in Jerusalem, going to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we're following this epic tale. And certainly it's uh, a unique tale because it's an account of the early church and the apostolic witness that went on there. But it also is something that is continuing today. Yes, there there are no apostles but the work of being his witnesses and the power of the Holy Spirit with, through the word of truth, through the gospel, continues. And so in many ways we are learning about this mission, that this purpose that he has given us in the book of Acts. And last week you heard about the work in Thessalonica and Berea from Jeff Haustow as he brought us God's word. Thanks, Jeff, so much for serving us last week. Uh, we were away. I was at a, our sister church down in Maryland and had a wonderful time. They are the church that uh, helped plant our church. They sent the team up here back in 2002, and uh, they were very encouraged just to hear about God's grace at work here. And they, they carry you guys on their hearts. It was a wonderful time, but it's great to be back. It's great to be back with you guys. There's no uh, better place to be than with you guys here on a Sunday. So I'm glad to, to be here and to bring you God's word. So we're following this story, and what you're going to see here is Paul is continuing with the team to go from city to city to proclaim Christ, to plant churches, and they arrive, actually Paul by himself arrives in Athens, this great city of Athens. Athens, I think we have a map to show, Athens uh, was and is uh, in history a very prominent city. It is part of Greece and probably the chief city in Greece in in terms of cultural impact. At the time, it wasn't as large of a city as Corinth, which is next uh, up, but it was a very significant city and is really a very significant city. Athens, the great city, the city that produced Plato and and, and the teachings of Aristotle, really the height of humanism, the the things that mankind has been able to do, is uh, represented by the city of Athens. And and I would submit to, uh, we'll see this a little bit as we go, I'll, I'll mention it elsewhere, but I would submit that really there's nothing better out there in terms of human achievement than the things that went on in and through Athens. So Athens represents the height of humanity in many ways. Did you know that, you probably do know that Boston is called the Athens of America? Boston is called the Athens of America, and really in many ways, Boston is an influential city in the United States and in the world in terms of culture, in terms of technology, uh, in, in terms of history. And I also would say that Boston is like Athens in terms of mindset and values, though not entirely, but much like Athens. So as we go through this story today, in God's providence, there's things for us to learn about being believers here in New England in this time, for we are much like Athens. We are much like Athens in the humanism that, uh, that is valued. 
if you think about it, uh, in conversations you have maybe with your neighbors and friends, conversations you maybe have uh, at college or uh, the workplace, uh, it's okay to talk about the achievements of men, is it not? Can you, you can talk about sports, you can talk about literature, you can talk about all these things, and nothing wrong with that. But, all, but when you go to mention God, all of a sudden you've kind of stepped in territory you're not supposed to go into, right? And it's kind of embarrassing. Oh, he mentioned, she mentioned God. It's a little, a little bit awkward right now, and you, know, you don't want to do that. And I think the reason for that is because we are like Athens, because we're very comfortable with exalting man and talking about the achievements and the greatness and goodness of man, and we're actually somewhat comfortable talking about God as long as he's serving man, as long as he's coming to affirm us and who we are. But to talk about God as, a, as an issue unto himself, as, as somehow superior to man, is just very awkward and embarrassing. And so... It's hard for us in many ways. Well, it's interesting. We'll see in the story how Paul deals with that. We learn in this story how God, how the truth of God, confronts the idolatry of humanism, really, in this, in this chapter, and really is instructive for us in all of life. So as we anticipate looking at this truth, as we anticipate learning from Acts, let's ask God to speak to us because we want to hear from him. We want to learn from him this morning. So, Lord, thank you for Acts 17. And, Lord, how we need the truths that are here. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word that speaks to us and we understand truth. And, Lord, we live in a world that has spoken to itself and defines things by itself. And, Lord, we are lost in our ignorance and foolishness and idolatry. So we ask you to come and rescue us today. And, Lord, as you rescue us, would you use us to rescue others from the foolishness of humanism and idolatry and be glorified as you do this, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Acts chapter 17, we'll start in verse 16 and read through the story to verse 34. Paul has been conducted, has been brought to Athens. He's left there by himself as he waits for his team. And it says in verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, and an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. God's word from Acts seventeen, sixteen to thirty four. We see Paul here in this story confronting the idolatry of men, confronting the humanistic idolatry of men. And and by the way, when I say humanism, I don't mean to, to say that we shouldn't care for people. When I say that, I'm talking about a humanism that's based on us alone, a, a secular uh, humanism, if there could be such a thing. And we see Paul confronting this idolatry, this man-centeredness of Athens. We see him provoked by the idols, provoked by what he sees, and we see him proclaiming the gospel. We see him proclaiming who God is and what God has done, particularly in creation and in Christ. We, We see Paul responding to what he sees by proclaiming the gospel. And this text teaches us that the answer, the answer to the empty idolatry of men is the glorious truth of the gospel. That the gospel is the glorious, the glorious truth of the gospel is the answer to the empty idolatry of men. And so Paul brings this truth and declares this truth to answer it. And it's an answer we need. We need it for our own souls. We need it for our part and interacting with our Athens as well. The gospel, the glorious truth of God and who he is and what he has done, the good news in in Christ is the answer to the empty idolatry of men. So let's look how Paul brings that answer, what what goes on here, how we can learn from him. We're going to talk about Paul being provoked. We're going to talk about Paul, what he proclaims, and then we're going to look at the response. So first, Paul is provoked. He's been left in Athens, and it's not clear... uh, If he was left there, probably not for strategic reasons, just as a kind of a holdover while his guys uh, 
deal with some loose ends in Macedonia, the churches that were there, the brand new baby churches whom Paul loves dearly. We see in First and Second Thessalonians his love for these churches. He's very concerned for them. So he, he says, guys, you know, you stay back. I'll just hang out in Athens for a little while. And then you come and get me and we'll move on. It doesn't appear that uh, he necessarily is planning to plant a church there, but perhaps we don't know for sure. And as he's there, he's in Athens. He's probably left at the coast. It's about five miles inland to the city of Athens. He's in Athens and, and he cannot help but be provoked by what he sees. For in that city... Uh, this great city are idols everywhere. The city is full of idols. Now, it's a beautiful city. We need to understand that, that Athens was beautiful. Uh, I think we have some pictures of Athens, uh, both of the map and, and, uh, and the modern pictures to put up. we have those? Uh, here's a map, and uh, just to show you kind of how things are laid out, north is at the top. Uh, the, the area where it says Agora, that's the marketplace. And then we have two hills down in the bottom, one kind of on the right, one up a little bit to the left. There's the famous Acropolis full of those beautiful white pillared buildings that we still see there today. And then another another hill called the Areopagus. That means um, the hill of Ares or Mars Hill. Uh, It was an important hill. It was where the council met originally. Uh, So in our text, when it talks about uh, being before the Areopagus, that means he's before the council. He may or may not be on the actual hill. We don't know. But that's where that hill meant. Uh, that's where the council met, on that hill. And it was just full of beautiful buildings. Beautiful, glorious buildings. It was a beautiful city and, and, and a, a good-sized one, though not what it once had been. And, and it was a significant city. And, and it's really important as we learn about this and we see this, we understand that, that this city was a very influential city culturally. And historically, I, I think... There's probably uh, only one city that would outstrip Athens in influence. That would be, of course, Jerusalem and the revelation of God to his people there. But Athens is a very significant city. It really is the, the fountain of philosophy, modern philosophy in the arts. So guys like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle are from there. The, the two philosophies mentioned, Epicureanism and Stoicism, are brilliant, by the way. They're brilliant philosophies if you dig into them. Uh, now, they're philosophies without God at the center, so they're ultimately foolish philosophies. But if you had to come up with a system to live life on without God, I don't think you'd do any better than Stoicism and Epicureanism. And I'll touch on that in a bit. This will not be a course on philosophy, but we'll just touch on it. Paul goes into Athens and he understands those things. He knows the the history. He quotes from their philosophers and their poets. He knows. He's grown up in Greek society. He understands it. And he's not going in ignoring those things. We see him engaging the culture with, on their own terms. But Paul had the ability to see through the beauty and grandeur of Athens to the heart of what was there. He saw through all these accomplishments to the heart that was there. And at the heart was idolatry. At the heart of what the Athenians were about was idolatry. It was lifting up man. It was focusing on man. It was domesticating God or a God for man's purpose. And that's what he saw. And, and the city was full of idolatry, both in concept and ideas and in the actual idols. It was packed full of images. Going through that Agora area, uh, there would have been statues everywhere. All the different gods and goddesses. The uh, Roman author of the day, Petronius, said it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. 
And Stott, John Stott, the pastor and theologian, commented on this, says there were innumerable temples, shrines, statues, and altars. In the Parthenon stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. Elsewhere there were images of Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, and Aesculapius, if I said that right. The whole Greek pantheon was there, all the gods of Olympus, and they were beautiful. Not only made of stone and brass, but gold, silver, ivory, marble. And they have been elegantly fashioned in the finest Greek sculptors. It was something to behold, but Paul saw through it all. Despite the glory that was Athens, Paul saw the rotten core. And he was provoked by this blatant and destructive blasphemy of the living God. And he had to do something about it. He could not just sit there and chill while he waited for the boys to come from Macedonia. He was provoked. He was provoked because he loved God and the fame of His name. He loved God's glory. He knew who God was and he knew how worthy God is of everybody's worship. And so he saw these idols as a slap in the face to an all-worthy and glorious God. And secondly, he cared for the souls of men who would be ensnared by such destructive, ridiculous sin. He saw through it. And it is so important for us to see through our culture as well. Not quite the same. We don't walk around and we see statues everywhere to idols, but our culture is full of idolatry. And we need to approach our culture like Paul did. He did not dismiss the good. He acknowledged the good. He used the good to do good. He acknowledged what was good and beautiful. Now, he doesn't go here into detail about that, but we see him quoting from some of their poets and so forth. He understood the culture. He acknowledged what was good, but he saw through it all to the heart. I think for us sometimes, we see the good in our culture, the beauty. We see technology. We see, we see art. We see good movies. We, see, uh, we watch good actors perform. We hear good music. And, and we maybe enjoy the good, but we don't discern the culture. We don't see through it to what is often the heart behind that. Now, our culture is a mixed one. There's Christians. There's a Christian influence. But much of what it is is just like Athens. At the core is idolatry. At the core is the lifting up of men, the exaltation of men above God. At the core is, is ignoring God and pushing Him out of the picture. So when we have those conversations where it's really awkward to talk about God, that's what's going on. There's idolatry. We don't want to hear about God. Is what our souls say left to themselves, what our culture says left to itself. And Acts 17 teaches us to be discerning of our culture. To hold the good, to value the good, but to be provoked by idolatry around us and in us. Do you see your culture the way Paul sees the Athenians? That's so important. It's so important. It's always been important. I think it's even more important in this age right now. And one of my chief concerns as a pastor is for our younger generation because there's a difference. I mean, and I'd say it was better in the old days. It was worse in many ways, and that's another message, another conversation. But our culture is overwhelming. It is, it is influential. And you either discern your culture and see what's going on, or you Get caught up in the flow of your culture. You will flow right with it and you will find yourself drifting from truth. And young people, you've got to hear this. It's so important to discern the culture. Enjoy the good. I love the good that's there. I love 
movies. I love comedians. I love those things. And, and there's, we're to enjoy the good, but we must be discerning. Don't get caught up in the flow of the culture. Hear, hear the truth of God. Hear the gospel and discern your culture. Paul did. Paul discerned. And so he did something. He was provoked. So he proclaimed the next point. He proclaimed. He, he reasoned. What does it say there in, the, in, verse, um, in chapter 17 and verse 17? As Paul was provoked, what did he do? Did he, did he just like hold a picket sign and start walking around Athens, you know, down with idols, down with idols and, and, and protest? Did he do that? Did he kind of gather some people that were like-minded and say, hey, guys, we're just going to get out of Athens we're going to go sit on that mountaintop and we're going to have a holy community together. We're going to make it right on our own. Did he do that? No, he engaged, didn't he? He reasoned with them. He went to the synagogue and he talked with those that had some background like his own. He reasoned with those in the, in the synagogue, the Jews and the devout people. But he didn't just do that. He also went out in the marketplace. He went out and got himself right in the middle of the fray and, and started talking with people in the marketplace. It said anyone who happened to go by... Paul talked with them. He engaged. Now, that was part of the culture as well. It was a little more accepted back then. Nowadays, you know, if you, it, we can face some challenges if we go sit in front of the post office and try to engage everybody. Um, it's a little different, but, but it's, there's things we can learn from that. Paul jumped right in the middle of the fray, and he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them. He engaged them with the, with the truth of God. Provocation for Paul led to proclamation for Paul. Concern for Paul led to communication for Paul. Incompatibility between the truth and them for Paul led to engagement. He jumped and got in the fray and interacted and reasoned from the Scriptures. And as he did, we see what happened. People talked, and then some people that were a little more elite perhaps, intellectually or whatever, uh, came along, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and he talked with them. And, and they kind of got interested, and it looks like uh, as they interacted that they, they decided, you know what, we, we want to hear you, but we're going to actually, we're gonna, we, they more or less arrested him. It was kind of a mild arrest, though. They took hold of him, and they took him to the city council to hear his ideas. Now, probably two things were going on in that. He took him to the city council. They took him to the city council because they wanted to check out his teaching to know whether they should let, allow it to continue. But also, they just loved new ideas. They loved to hear new ideas. And by the way, that's symptomatic of humanism and idolatry. And not to say new ideas are bad, but, but when you have no ground, no absolute, you're always looking for something that works. Uh, so they're interested in new ideas. So they take him to the Areopagus. They take him to the city council. Now, uh, by the way, when it mentions the Epicureans and Stoics, and Luke mentions this, I, I don't think it's just because he just figures he'll throw it out there. I think there's some things going on. Again, the point here, Athens represents the very best that mankind can offer. And if you study Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, um, to sum it up if I can, um, Epicurean philosophy says uh, life is... It's, a, it's an attempt to find meaning, and, and Epicurean says life is about pleasure and pain. It, it, and really, uh, life is about pleasure and pain, you, and what you really want to do in life is you want to maximize your pleasure and minimize your pain. And so they, that was what they were about, and don't, and, and don't think that they were just going out and being dissolute, actually. They, they reasoned, they thought, how, do, how can I do this? And a lot of ways they thought is just to be with my friends, to value friends and good times, try to not to do anything that's harmful in the long run. And just have that kind of philosophy of life. 
The Stoics were uh, similar. They were trying to find meaning in life, and, and they basically said, well, life is about the pursuit of, of principle and truth. And a rational mind, a, an informed mind is one of the highest virtues. If we can understand principles and pursue truth in our life, that's of greatest value. That's what life is about. And if you think about it, those are pretty good philosophies if you don't have God. And if you study modern philosophy and modern culture, I think you might recognize those two philosophies. They're basically the philosophy of our day. Epicureanism would be the existentialist postmodernism, and that's a big couple words, but it just means, you know, you don't know anything, so just kind of chill with your friends. Play games, make the best of it with people. That's kind of Epicureanism. Stoicism is basically let's, let's use our mind to try to find things that matter, and let's live life around the mind, and, and that would basically represent the intellectual postmodernism and scientism of our age. Isn't it interesting? Uh, nothing new under the sun. And, and, and really, uh, the very best that humans can offer is represented by Athens. So Paul is brought there. He engages them. He's brought before the Areopagus, and this is his moment uh, where he proclaims to them the truth. So we want to study a little bit his proclamation to learn. To learn both for our own souls, what we need to hear in light of our idolatry, and to learn for the sake of our culture, how to engage the culture. So let's kind of step through his preaching. And again, when Luke writes this, we've talked about this other places in the speeches and acts. There's probably more to the original speech. It probably was longer than, this is what, about five minutes of reading. Probably was longer, maybe a half hour, maybe even longer than that. Luke is summing up the key points. So we can learn uh, from this because Luke has summed it up for us and helped us see the key points that Paul is bringing. So what he does is he proclaims to them. He starts out, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's engaging them. I see, guys, that you're very spiritual. Now, this was, could be both, um, both a compliment and a gentle critique. In other words, you're, you're kinda, I, I see that your, your spiritual life is really important, and, or I kind of see that you're even a little superstitious. He just makes this comment, though he engages them. I see that you guys are interested in spiritual things. And then he goes on. He, he grabs a hold of something he had seen when he walked around the city. He had observed the culture. He had learned. He, he knew from his training as well, and he knew from being there. He had, he had observed and learned, and he had seen this statue to an unknown god. That they had a monument to an unknown god. And that was a good thing in some ways. So Paul latches onto that. Why was it a good thing? Because it was an admission by the Athenians that they didn't quite know everything. And that was good. So Paul grabs hold of that good thing in the culture. He grabs hold of that good thing there, this statue to an unknown God, and says, guys, you've admitted that you don't know everything. You've admitted that you're ignorant. And now I'm going to tell you who that unknown God really is. What a, what a great way to start. He's engaged them. He's meeting them on their terms. But he's not compromising. He's meeting them on their terms and he's bringing in the truth. You know what? There's always going to be ways that we can do that. As we observe and as we love people and learn about our culture, we're going to find common ground that we can go to and from that place launch into the proclamation of the truth. And so he does that. In this, he's wise and he's winsome. And we can, we can be wise and winsome in our own lives as well as we engage. Now, most of us are not going to be in front of the Areopagus. We're not going to be in front of the city council. We're not going to be on the television or whatever 
We're, we're just going to be neighbors and friends and co-workers. That's your area. That's your place to be winsome, to love people, to observe their lives, their values, and then look for opportunities to, to serve them and bless them and build a ground to talk to them and then to share with them the truth of the living God. They need to hear this truth. Paul engages them this way, and then he proceeds from here to paragraph by paragraph entirely dismantle the system of humanistic idolatry. He dismantles it paragraph by paragraph, argument by argument. Let's, let's see how he does that. He starts off saying, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The true God has made everything. Everything that exists comes from Him. He made all reality. He made all things. He's made the whole universe. He's made the world. And He is, by right, as the maker of all things, He is Lord of everything. He rules over everything. If you make something, it's yours, right? You've made it. God has made the world, and He's Lord of everything. And so He doesn't live in temples made by men. That's just ridiculous. That the Lord of all, the maker of all things, that that he'd be confined to these temples? He has to live in a temple made by men? Made by the puny hands of men? And we'll see man mentioned much in in this paragraph. It's ridiculous. So the whole idea that you'd have a temple, that's where you go to meet your God. And you have the God of this and the God of that. The Agora was full of temples to all sorts of things, idols to everything. That just doesn't make sense. The real God who made all things, whose Lord is so far beyond being confined to any temple that this whole idea is ridiculous is basically what Paul is saying here. It's ridiculous to think that the very foundation of existence would somehow have to dwell in a temple. He attacks idolatry and humanism at its very core to think that our hands, that our hands and our ideas will somehow or could somehow create God. That our ideas and our hands could somehow determine what truth is. And isn't that the idolatry of our culture? Truth is what we determine. Right is what we determine. What we vote on is is what's the truth. What we research and find, that's the truth. And the truth is, is malleable, it's changeable, because it depends on us. Isn't that part of what our culture does? And Paul says that's ridiculous. No temple, no university, no religious system defines God. God defines all things. We can't, dis- we can't make truth. We can only learn truth from the one who's given it. God is the maker and Lord of all. And if there's any truth to be found, it's found in Him. And and He allows us to discover it. That's the only way we get there. We don't find truth. We don't define things. We are lost, left to ourselves. Don't be ridiculous. Thinking you can make a temple to reality created by your own hands. God Himself is truth. That little sentence, Paul's hitting all those things. Those are the sort of things that are happening in the minds perhaps of his speakers as he brings the truth. And he goes on, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is not needy. 
God does not depend on man. God is not defined by man. Guys, you're wrong. Isn't that the, the foundational problem? We, we think it's about us. And, and we do something for God. He needs us. He needs our, he needs our worship because he, he feels lonely or something. Or He needs us to affirm Him. He needs us. He doesn't need us. He's not dependent. What is God's name when He reveals Himself to Moses? Who does He say? Yeah. I am. That is an amazing answer to Moses. He reveals Himself, I am. What He means by that is, I am the ultimate reality. I am the determiner of all things. I am the only self-existent one. Because I am, you are. Because I am, there is. If I were not, there would not be. I am the center. I am the one who has always existed. I need nobody. I don't need you. You come from me. Not me, from you. I am. He doesn't need us. He's not dependent. He's not needy. He's all-sufficient. He's glory. Glorious, He is the I Am. And everything else flows from that. Paul is declaring the character, the nature of God to people who have domesticated Him, to people who have made their own gods. And that's true for the Athenians, and I don't want us to miss this point. It's true for us. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. Our, our, our nature, left to itself, our sinful nature, is always making idols because we want some other God besides the God. And so we need to hear this truth as well. He alone is the I Am. He defines all things. And he goes on, And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He made from one man every nation of mankind. God has made man. So he dismantles one by one the false assumptions of the Athenians. He dismantles that, the, the, the whole idea that, that we determine who God is. He dismantles the, the whole idea that, that we, somehow, we somehow influence God, that, that, he, that we are first, then God. And now he dismantles that, that we are have an existence apart from God. He dismantles self-determination. You are not your own person. You do not belong to yourself. I mean, you do, but you ultimately belong to God. God has made you. God made from one man all nations. And God determined the places and the times that they should live. And it says that they should seek God. Paul says that they should seek God. God has made you for Himself. Augustine says that you have made us for Yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in You. It's good news that we're made for God. But it's foolishness that we often pursue to think that we are self-determined, to think that our lives are what we make them. We are the captains of our own destiny. No. Paul says, no. God made all men. And you are made for Him. And He sovereignly determined where you would live. Why? So that you would seek Him and know Him and live for Him. That's the purpose of life. There's no purpose apart from that. 
Man is not self-defined. Man is defined by God. Paul is coming again and again against the presumption and folly of idolatry and humanism in Athens and in our own lives. We owe God our lives. We are made by Him and for Him. We're not byproducts of chance. We're not simply products of a long evolutionary chain. We were made by God and for God. And this God is never going to be domesticated. He is who He is. And we must learn to come under Him. And it's a good thing to come under Him because He's all glorious. He's good. He's great. We must learn to come under Him. He he is never to be domesticated. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his book, one of his books, actually I think it's in a couple places, in speaking of his character Aslan, who represents Jesus, says, He is not a tame lion. God is not a tame lion. You'll never tame Him. And we want to tame Him. We want to kind of make Him into a kitty cat that we can kind of hold on our lap, you know, and have as our pet. God, do this for me, and then do this for me. It's about me. But God's not a tame, he's not a kitty cat, he's not even a tame lion, he's a mighty lion. And instead of saying, God, I want this, we should be saying, God, what do you want? I belong to you. I find my life in you. I define myself by you. Truth is from you. There's no truth apart from you. Wisdom is from you. Life is from you. I need you. Help me to live for what I'm made for. Lead me in your ways. That's the answer to that. But we, again and again, stray from this, don't we? And we can be so subtle in it at times. I could illustrate probably thousands of examples from my own life where I try to domesticate God. And He's always ruining my party when I do that. Some years ago, I wanted to be a pastor, which probably makes sense, but it was, I was in my 20s. And I really felt like God wanted me to be a pastor. And I think I was right, but not ready. Uh, and, and I was working as a researcher, which is what I used to do. And uh, I was an elder in my church, in which I shouldn't have been. I would now would never have made myself an elder where I was at that time. I was like 24 years old, and I was a, a young man full of himself. And and I I started to make some adjustments. I was pursuing theological training, and I was changing my job hours. Actually, I started working part time and serving the church, and and really thought, you know, I'm going to be a pastor. I'm going to become a pastor, and and then this will be, you know. A meaningful life when I pastor. I'll finally be somebody. And though I never said that, I thought that sort of thing, which is foolishness. I'm not anybody apart from who he is. Whatever role I might have ultimately means nothing. He alone defines who I am. But anyhow, I I was doing these things, and and without uh, getting into the whole story, basically God clearly and unmistakably shut the door on that and made it clear, no, Paul, this isn't what you want. So guess what I did? Instead of saying, oh, oh Lord, you know, you're the lion. You're the Lord. I, I follow you. Forgive me for making up my own thing. I thought, no, well, well since I, I can't be your pastor, I'm going to go be a college professor. I'm going to find who I am somewhere else. And I just foolishly went on to the next thing. And, and, uh, and I applied to grad school. And, and my credentials were good. I, I met with some professors. And, and they said, yeah, I mean, it basically was an assumption that I would get into grad school and I would go uh, go and get my advanced degree, and, uh, and be somebody. And uh, God shut the door again. 
in a clear, unmistakable way. And I should have said at that time, you know, like, Lord, you're, you're Lord, but I didn't. I said, God, why are you messing around with me? Why don't you let me serve you the way I want to serve you? Which is ridiculous. Like, Lord, let me serve you how I want to serve you. God would say, no, I'm God. You're not. That's a good thing. Learn humility. Learn to trust me. And it took some time. It took about two months for me to get over my anger and my pride. Um, I wish I got it over completely and forever, but, but did get over a hump. was able to turn around and, and be changed by that and learn some humility. And it isn't, isn't it like God that in the end I actually started, I ended up becoming a pastor, uh, and I ended up getting my graduate degree in my field too. I never became a professor. Um, that wouldn't have been a very good one, but, uh, but God turned things around. He's gracious, but he's God. I'm not. Maybe this morning as you're listening to this, you're aware that you have been trying to be captain of your own destiny. You've been trying to determine who and what you should be and what you should do. And, and not that God wouldn't use that process, but perhaps behind that process is not a love for God, not a submission to Him as Lord, but is idolatry of self. God is God. Let Him be Lord. Come under Him. Learn to glory in Him and depend on Him. This is what Paul's getting at for the Athenians. That's what's behind their idolatry. God is God. And he, he continues the story here. That we have been made by God, that we should seek God and hope that we might feel our way toward Him and find Him. He's not far from each one of us. In Him we live and move and have our being. And he says, for we are indeed His offspring. Those are quotes from their culture. He's saying God, is, God has made you for Himself, and He's not far off. He is God, and we are to live our lives under Him, but He's not far. We're made to seek Him. We're made to know Him. And then He continues. He sums up here, and He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. In the past, He let it slide, uh, among the Gentiles in particular. He let it slide, but now he's bringing things to a conclusion. Now he's dealing with idolatry, and it's not okay to continue in it. He commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. God is going to judge the Athenians in righteousness by the right standard. He's going to judge them according to truth and who he really is. And he's going to judge Americans too, and he's going to judge Christians too. He will judge and bring about the right decision. And he goes on here. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That man is Jesus. Jesus has come to remedy the situation. And His resurrection is God's stamp of approval on Jesus. God is saying, this is the man. And we know the the rest of the story that Paul perhaps didn't get to, that this is the man, the God-man, who has come and lived the righteous life under the Father in all things. Did not ever do anything idolatrous, but fully depended on God in His whole life. And lived for His Father to the point of a grueling death where He bore the justice of God on the cross. He obeyed to that extent, laying down His glory as God the Son. 
to obey the Father, to please the Father, to live with the Father as the center of His affections. And He went to that cross and He shed His blood, His righteous, infinitely worthy blood for sinners that any and all who repent and believe would have forgiveness and would have and experience the, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to change us from idolaters to worshipers. Jesus has come to remedy the situation for those who would repent and believe and to remedy the situation by judging those who don't. And so Paul warns the Athenians, you need to repent. There's a man, Jesus, who's there now. He will be the judge. He can be your Savior. He can be your judge. God will not sit by and let idolatry continue. He will deal with it. He will set all things right. It is right to have God at the center. If the band could come up as we close. This is the answer for the empty idolatry of men. The truth about who God is and the truth about Jesus Christ. The one who will resolve all things. And we see mixed response here, don't we? We don't have a whole crowd coming. There are some who mock. But that doesn't stop Paul. His love and passion for God propels him to proclaim God regardless of the reply. Yes, he cared about the souls of men, but first in his affections was the glory of God. And so he proclaims the truth of God out of his love for God. And some mock. Some are interested. And that's a good thing. Maybe you're in that place. You're listening, you're thinking, you know, interesting, I want to hear more. You're welcome here. Some believe. Actually, a prominent person, Dionysius of the Areopagite, he's a member of the council. He believes in this important woman. It looks like Damaris and others with them. There's some results here, but not great results. Paul cares about these people. He wants them to know the Lord. But his proclamation is first for his love for God and the ways of God. And later on, we'll learn he goes to the next city and has a huge harvest. We can't control the results. There'll be huge harvests. There'll be times of little harvest. Regardless of the results, we certainly want to see good results. There's lots of good results going on in the earth today. And there's lots of places where to be a Christian is to be a persecuted minority. Nevertheless, let us proclaim the truth of the gospel, the glory of God in Christ as the answer to the empty idolatry of men, as the answer to the idolatry in our own hearts, in the idolatry of the world around us. Let us engage our culture lovingly, kindly, wisely, winsomely, with the truth of who God is. That the the gospel, the truth, the, the glory of God might be put on display and answer the foolish and empty idolatry of our own hearts and of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for rescuing us from our idolatry. Oh God, how ridiculous we can be. We are no better than the Athenians left to ourselves. We make idols. We think we're the ones that determine truth and destiny and all these things. And and we make idols of ourselves and, and other things. And Lord, how foolish. Thank you for the truth of who you are and the power of the gospel in our lives change us. Make us worshipers. And Lord, use us with our family members and neighbors and co-workers and friends to proclaim who you are in the midst of a culture that largely has lifted up the idol of man. May you glorify your name through this. 
May you save many souls and add them to your church for their joy in you. In the fame of your name we pray. Amen. That's all stand.